KHP Patreon exclusive 005 Ranger Part 1 I'm a ranger with the Pennsylvania Game Commission. I've been stationed at the same section of woods, located about 10 miles outside of Dubois, Pennsylvania, for roughly 15 years. The area I cover consists of about 100 square miles of forest, from Penfield to the Quihanna Wilds. There was some activity with the Marcellus shale boom a few years back that resulted in some natural gas pads being put into the forest that I patrol. I don't mind these being around, as they give me good opportunity to see deer, elk, and turkey more easily in the clearings than hoping to see one on the edge of the road. I've begun patrolling these gas well areas a bit more frequently to look for anyone trying to break in to steal some of the scraps of iron and maintenance equipment left over. I know I'm not the shale company's personal security, but seeing more wildlife and having a chance to do something exciting for once is definitely a good reason to take those roads a few extra times per week. My main duties include watching for strange behavior in wildlife, watching for illegal activity of hunters, trappers, and campers in the area, keeping an eye out for any sign of a wildfire or unattended campfire, and enforcing regulations regarding watercraft safety on the river that runs on the edge of my patrol area. Every once in a while, I'll respond to calls from civilians with tips regarding some of these activities. Once a year, someone will go missing on the river, and we, in tandem with the state police, conduct searches for whoever is lost. It can get pretty boring when hunting season is in, and the animal that is on every hunter's mind vanishes into their yearly hiding spots to avoid dying. I've got tons of odd stories I can tell about this job. Weird people in the woods, odd animal behavior, and one even about me getting lost. Yeah, me, a game commissioner getting lost on his own patrol routes. Maybe one day I'll get to tell them all. It was mid-October when this particular story takes place. Archery season had just come in, and deer were the ones being hunted. With our area being a state game land, lots of eager hunters from around the area, and some from outside of the state, were coming in to try their luck at finding a deer dumb enough to venture out from the steep cliffs and valleys. I was driving up and down the most traveled roads of the area, mainly looking for anyone looking to bag a deer while barely leaving their car. It's a lazy and unsportsmanlike way to hunt, in my opinion. It happens a lot less in archery season than in rifle season, though, due to the amount of space required to draw a bow back. You usually have to get out of the vehicle and shoot the bow before the animal runs. It's a rare occurrence to see, but it does happen. 
I had done my usual rounds and driven past the gas well pads to see if anyone was encroaching on the no trespassing areas around each one. Surprisingly, everyone seemed to be following the law this day, and I was glad for that. I did enjoy giving out citations any more than someone wanted to receive one. Eventually, dusk could come, and many were packing up their vehicles to leave until the next morning. I was driving through, making sure that no one had a dead battery or flat tires that would leave them stranded in the middle of nowhere. I saw a group of three vehicles on the side of the road, with a group of guys standing amongst them. They didn't have the usual look of someone packing up to hunt another day. Pulling off the road and shutting my engine off, I asked if there was something wrong. They stated that the friend, Stephen, was still in the woods. They went to the spot that he said he would be at, but at that spot was an empty milk crate that he had been sitting on. His lunchbox and thermos was there, but no sign of Stephen himself. They told me his spot was about a mile into the woods, near a small decline into a valley. Any deer moving around would most likely come through there. When I say this was a valley, I really mean that it was more of a gouge in the earth, roughly 30 feet deep with steep, uneven rocks on both sides, and loose dirt made of decaying leaves on top of it. One of the older men in the group, I think his name was Emil, handed me a walkie-talkie and told me that everyone in the group had one, Stephen included. I radioed my position and situation with a few other officers near the area to respond and gave a description of the trucks we were standing at. We left two people at the trucks in case Stephen showed up or the officers I radioed came by before we returned. There was still a bit of light in the sky when we started, but it soon faded, and the forest grew darker every minute. The temperature began dropping as well. It was forecast to be in the low 30s that night. Someone seasoned in the outdoors could survive that fairly easily, if they knew what they were doing. The leaves were brittle and crunched as the three of us walked through the woods, flashlights shining around, calling Stephen's name every ten or twenty seconds. Every couple of minutes, someone would try to raise Stephen on the walkie-talkies, with no response. After about twenty minutes, we reached the spot where Stephen was supposed to be at. There was a plastic milk crate, lunchbox, and thermos lying next to a tree. Stephen had definitely set his position here. There weren't any clear signs to cause us to think that he had a reason to get up and leave. We once again tried to raise him on the walkie-talkie and shout for him. No response. I told Emil and Michael to go in different directions. Emil should walk to the top of the valley, looking to see if Stephen might have slipped and fallen down the steep incline. 
and Michael would walk the other side of the valley, in case Stephen tried to do a loop around it and somehow got lost. I would walk the bottom of the valley looking for him. We would all stay within earshot and within sight of Emil's flashlight, which was the brightest of all three. I walked along the valley floor for a few hundred yards before I saw anything out of the ordinary. It looked as though a patch of leaves was kicked away to clear the ground off. I shined my flashlight around, looking for any other clues to go off of. I saw some dirt smeared on more leaves nearby, making a sort of trail. I followed these dirty leaves until they started to glisten slightly. I bent down to get a closer look. Blood. There was blood on the leaves, with a definite smeared trail leading around the curve in the valley. I called out for Emil and Michael that I had found something and that they should come and check it out. I let the others catch up with me and showed it to them. The blood-smeared leaves in front of us. Maybe someone else got a deer earlier, Emil suggested. It was possible, but doubtful, as the group never saw anyone else around this area all day. We followed the blood trail around the bend of the valley, almost losing sight of the blood due to the red-orange colors of the leaves. But we were always brought back due to the glint of our flashlights on the still, wet blood. We then turned the corner and saw a bow laying on the ground. It was a Hoyt compound bow, grayish in color and well-kept. It was lying next to a rock wall in the valley. We looked at the wall, wondering if Stephen had fallen from it and dropped his bow, pulling himself out of the valley, and we followed the trail backwards. But the blood smear told us otherwise. We spread out a bit to see if we could find any other signs of Stephen. I was looking up and down the wall near the bow when Michael yelled out that he had found a cave. Indeed, he found a cave. It was about three feet wide at the entrance, just wide enough to walk through without turning sideways. There wasn't any blood on the ground, but there were a series of gouges, as if you had drug a boot across the ground by the heel. We looked at each other. Everyone was armed with a pistol, myself included, and we drew our weapons. We called out to Stephen, our voices barely reverberating within the stone cave. We didn't hear a response. Michael radioed for Stephen on the walkie-talkie, and we heard the static hiss from somewhere in the cavern. I took the first steps in, my flashlight shining the way in front of me. My light seemed less bright due to the dark rock absorbing much of the beam. The cave only seemed to push into the valley's far side for about ten feet before abruptly turning to the right. I whispered Stephen's name, but heard nothing. I reached a turn in the cave and slowly took it, revealing a room 
larger than I had expected. It was roughly ten feet wide and eight feet tall. There were some craggy stones scattered, making the floor rough and uneven. Sitting against the wall, facing the only way in or out, was a man in bright orange hunting camouflage, head slumped, a revolver in his hand that was touching the floor next to him. We had found Stephen. Emil and Michael pushed past me to check on their friend. I snapped from my trance of relief that we had found our guy, to one of medical importance. I warned them not to move Stephen until we checked for injuries. I stepped out of the cave to radio the rest of the group to let them know that we had found Stephen. I told them to get into my truck and radio for EMS services. Stephen wasn't looking great and would probably need a life flight out of here. My walkie-talkie sputtered static back at me before I heard the voice of one of the men at the trucks say that the other Game Commission officers had arrived and would assist them in calling EMS and setting up a landing site for the helicopter at one of the gas pads nearby. Walking back into the cave, Emil and Michael were still checking Stephen over. They had moved his gun from his hand and set it out of reach in case Stephen awoke in a frenzy and tried to hurt them. They found his leg had some large, irregular scratches on it. They went right through his thick pants and deep into his flesh. He had lost quite a lot of blood, as it had stained a large portion of the dirt beneath his leg. He also had a similar gash on his chest and shoulder area. His shirt and vest had blood soaking through them. We used our jackets and shirts to make some sad excuses for bandages, and we attempted to stop as much of the bleeding as we could. Stephen was still breathing, and twitched slightly as we applied the bandages. Emil and I left Michael and Stephen to go and make a makeshift stretcher to carry Stephen towards safety with. We found some large, straightish branches and ran them through an arm of each of the jackets we were carrying. One branch was for the left arms, one for the right arms. We zipped the jackets so they would hold the two branches at the stretcher's width and brought it back into the cave. Carefully, we moved Stephen, paying close attention to his neck and head so that it didn't move much, and laid him on the stretcher. We lifted Stephen and walked out of the cave. Thankfully, he wasn't a large man. He was roughly 40 years old and weighed 170 pounds, so it was fairly easy to move him out of the cave and out of the valley. Emil grabbed the bow, thermos, and lunchbox that Stephen had brought with him while Michael and I carried the stretcher. While we were walking, we heard Stephen mumbling to himself, we tried talking to him, but he did not seem to respond to anything that we tried. He only said a few words. No. Get back. 
woman, cabin. Those were the few that I was able to make out. We walked for about three quarters of a mile before we saw lights of some of the other responders. A few state police had come with the game commission to assist in the search if we had found nothing. We let the paramedics that came with the state police transfer Stephen to a proper stretcher before carrying him the rest of the way out to the road. They tended to him, started an IV for fluids, and closed the doors of the ambulance before driving towards the makeshift helipad. About 15 minutes later, we saw a helicopter fly off into the distance towards what I would assume to be Danville Hospital. As the police were taking statements and I was preparing to leave, Michael gestured for me to come over. He showed me Stephen's revolver. Two shots had been fired from the six-shot cylinder. Something had spooked Stephen bad enough to warrant shooting to kill it. Seeing those gashes on his body led me to believe that he may have had a run-in with a bear, slipped and fell off the rock wall, and scrambled in the small cave with the adrenaline rush. A day or two later, I received the update that Stephen was going to be somewhat okay. The gashes in his leg were bad enough that they messed up some nerves and would cause him to lose motion in his ankle and foot. He would survive, though. I wanted to see if I could find anything more regarding what happened to Stephen that day. The next time I was in the area where Stephen went missing, I pulled my truck off to the side of the road and got out. I began walking in the direction of the valley. I crunched through the woods and moved small branches out of my way and stepped over fallen trees as I went. The area seemed different, quieter than it had the last time I was there. And that's saying something, because it was dark the last time I was there. The leaves had begun to change from their vibrant oranges and reds to more of a pink and brown color as the nights had gotten colder and the leaves had begun to lose moisture within them. The whole place seemed more dead than I remembered. Eventually, I reached the tree that had the milk crate still sitting next to it. I sat down for a few minutes and listened for anything out of the ordinary. A few minutes passed before I stood up and walked along the far ridge at the top of the valley, looking for the spot above the cave where we found Stephen in. Eventually, the valley below looked like the area where the cave was at, I looked around for anything that shouldn't have been there. I found an old beer can that was rusted through and falling apart. But other than that, there was nothing. I looked over the edge, towards the cave, and spotted something. A piece of dark green nylon fabric. Grabbing a long stick from the ground, I gingerly stepped down the steep stone incline until I reached a point where I could retrieve the fabric with the stick. The fabric slid off the edge of the wall 
and down to the bottom of the valley when I tried to grab it. I said a few choice words and scrambled back to the top of the valley to take the long walk back around to get to the bottom safely. When I reached the fabric, I saw that it was a small strip of what looked like a vest. It still had some insulation stuck to it from where it was ripped. I know Stephen wasn't wearing a vest this color when he was out here. He had been wearing an orange jacket with camouflage patterns on it. I tucked the fabric in my pocket and looked around. The sky had gone from partly sunny to overcast within the last hour. I knew it would only be a matter of time before the rain that was forecast today would begin to fall. I knew the cave was only a few feet away. Maybe there would be something we missed in the panic of getting Stephen to safety. I walked up to its dark stone walls and pulled out my flashlight, searching for any marks on the wall that would show a bear pawing at the entrance, or even a deer rubbing its antlers against the rock. But I found nothing. I took a few steps inside, looking at the floor, the ceiling, the walls. Pretty much anywhere that someone wouldn't look at the time of trying to find a person that they knew was in the cave. When the turn leading to the main room was in front of me, I saw something that we had all missed initially. There was a large, fresh indent surrounded by lighter-colored stone that had been flaked away. It was roughly chest height, and flakes of copper-colored metal were scattered within the lighter-colored stone. It was the mark from one of the shots that Stephen had fired from his pistol. I took a picture with my phone and looked around for the second indent. It didn't take me long until I found a similar light-colored patch on the wall near the entrance, roughly six feet off the floor, opposite to where Stephen was sitting. Stephen saw something inside that cave that made him fire off shots. Maybe the one I found further in the cave was a warning shot, and the second, at chest height, was aimed to kill. Nothing else caught my attention inside the cave, and I walked into the slowly darkening woods. I decided to leave using the far side of the valley and to travel around the ridge back to the milk crate, the same route that Emil had taken, just to cover my bases and make sure everything in the area had been searched. This way out was much steeper than the other side and much more craggy and covered in loose rocks. I knocked down a few while climbing and they clattered down to the floor of the valley. As I climbed, I was starting to become out of breath. I wasn't used to mountain climbing while on duty. As my sightline crested the top of the hill, I ducked quickly. I slowly peered over the small bits of rock, dirt, and leaves to see a wooden structure in front of me. It looked like a small one-room cabin or a shack that moonshiners would have used back in the 20s. I pulled myself the rest of the way to the top of the hill and got my footing. Crunching through the leaves, I moved towards the shack, 
I leaned against a tree to catch my breath and just take in the area for a second before moving closer. The cabin seemed to be old, really old. It seemed to be a small, single-room shack that would have probably housed moonshine or maybe even a still at one point. It didn't look large enough for someone to have lived in full-time. The roof looked to be sagging a bit, and the window that was once protecting the interior from the elements was now non-existent. The chimney seemed to have lost a few pieces of the main stone and was leaning towards the roof, threatening to fall and collapse the entire building. Standing up and moving towards the building, I approached the empty window, peering inside with my headlamp. There appeared to be an old leather chair that was nearly a skeleton of a wooden frame and scraps of the leather lying around it. An old table frame sat with no top to set anything on. A shelf covered with moss and dirt hung on the wall near the chimney. I walked around the outside of the cabin, looked at the chimney, made of stone, that seemed to be the same as the valley I had just come out of. Its dark color and rough texture felt the same as the rocks I had just climbed minutes earlier. Walking around the cabin, I eventually reached the door. It seemed to be the sturdiest piece left of the shack. Its boards were old, dry, and moss-covered, but it was not rotting away like most of the other parts. I saw two holes in the door that used to probably hold a rope to use as a handle. I pulled the door open, and it creaked slightly, as it had not been moved in a long time, and looked inside, not wanting to set foot across the doorway in case the extra weight of my body sent the place crumbling with me under it. I closed the door and stepped away from the cabin, thinking that I was done with my search. Just some mysterious fabric and bullet markings that we had missed. I wondered why Emil hadn't seen this cabin and called down to us. Maybe I had just found the blood before he came within eyesight of the cabin. I began to walk back towards the ridge and head to my truck when I heard a noise behind me, one that I had heard just a moment earlier. Turning around, I saw the door finishing its journey and stop, wide open, inviting me inside. And I'd like to say that I just ran away and forgot about the whole thing, but I'm not that type of man. I need to see things through from the start to the finish. I walked up to the doorway again and looked inside. Just moments ago, I had seen the inside of this decrepit shack, and now it had changed. The table frame had a top, and sat on it were some wooden utensils. Next to that were some herbs that had been dried and forgotten. The leather chair was still melded with the floor of the shack, creating a single-colored lump in the corner of the room, but a more sturdy wooden chair sat overturned in the corner. I stepped back 
and began walking towards the left side of the valley, the side that would lead me to the milk crate and back to my truck. As I walked near the edge of the valley, I heard a noise below echo from the rocks. It was the sound of rocks tumbling down, hitting each other and coming to a rest at the floor of the valley. Peering over, I saw a woman with long, dark hair climbing the wall slowly. I only saw her for a split second before jumping back in fear. My heart started beating quickly, and I suddenly got nervous twinges in my stomach as I felt I needed to find a hiding place. Eventually, I laid down between some larger rocks that made up the valley itself, with large enough cracks between them to slip into easily. I watched silently as the woman finished her climb, and I got a better look at her. She seemed to be older, in her late 60s, wearing a green insulated vest that eerily matched the fabric that I was storing in my pocket. She had blue jeans that were stained with patches of brown from climbing the hill. She wiped the dirt off her hands onto her already soiled jeans. As she walked, I noticed that she was not wearing any shoes and had a slight limp. Her pale, bare feet, only stained dark brown from the dirt that she walked on, carried her through the forest without regard for potential hazards of sticks, rocks, or thorns. The woman walked towards the cabin at a regular pace, slowing only once she had gotten near enough to see that the door was open. She stepped back and looked around for a while, looking in my direction for a long time. I thought that she might have seen me and was about to confront me. Eventually, she stepped into the doorway and out of my sight as I heard the faint creak and slam of the door closing. I can't tell you how long I sat and waited for her to come out. I know that I was snapped out of my trance when my body began shivering from the cold. It had been raining for a while now, and I was soaked through entirely. I got up slowly and walked the mile back to the truck, walking slowly as to not slip on the rocks that were becoming more and more slippery. I eventually found myself back on the road and at my truck. I slipped out of my wet clothes and into a spare set that I kept in the back seat for instances like this. Grabbing the handset of my radio, I called for another officer to come assist me with looking at the cabin. Within a half hour, I saw Marcus driving up the road through the slight mist of rain. I put on my rain gear and told him about the cabin I saw. He had also been in this area quite a few times and did not remember ever seeing a cabin in the woods. We trekked back through the soggy forest to the edge of the valley, and I was filling him in on some of the details with Stephen and the rescue. We walked along the ridge until we could see the cabin's odd slants and corners, sticking out from the natural landscape. We slowly walked up to the cabin. Marcus had his hand on his pistol, just in case. When we reached the door, I noticed that it looked different. Older. 
The door, which was once the nicest part of this cabin, was now a rotten mass that was barely on its hinges. I pushed it open as best as I could, bits and pieces of the rotting wood coming apart in my hands, and I peered inside. The rotting building that I had seen the old furniture in, and the table sitting inside of, was now completely empty. I mean, there was nothing but a rotting roof, decaying floor, and crumbling chimney held together by four walls and a nearly non-existent door. Marcus gave me a look and asked if I was sure that I saw what I saw. Now I know that I saw what I saw, and that'll never change. Regardless if Marcus believed me or not, that damn cabin had furniture and changed twice while I was around it. Marcus and I turned to head back towards the trucks to get the hell out of those woods and to get warm and dry. As we were walking along the ridge, I glanced towards the bottom of the valley. I knew I was looking in the right area. When I looked down in the valley, I saw the spot where the hole in the cave should have been. It wasn't there. The dark stone was just a single, solitary piece, with no gaps or holes leading into it. I opened my mouth to say something, but held my tongue, as Marcus would never believe me. We made it to the truck. I thanked him for coming out to help me, and climbed into my truck to head home and get warm. I visited Danville Hospital the next day. I stopped in Stephen's room to ask him a few questions about what happened to him. He stated that he was sitting at the milk crate watching the area around him. After a few hours, he decided to get up, stretch his legs, and see if he could scare anything out of the brush. He walked along the ridge till he saw the cabin. I could hear his breath get shorter as the fear from the memories became apparent. He walked into the cabin, thinking that it would make a nice shooting spot. When he looked inside, he saw that it was empty, like Marcus and I had seen. He decided that because it was so rotten, he wouldn't stay inside of it, and began walking to the other ridge on the far side of the valley. As he walked along the ridge, he was looking down into the valley for any deer. He stopped to adjust his vest. When he felt something push him from the side, he was shoved by a woman. As he fell, he turned to see the woman with dark, disheveled hair, green vest, and denim pants. He reached out and grabbed at her, trying to stop his fall, but only managed to rip a small piece of fabric from her vest as he began to plummet down into the valley. He hit the wall a few times and spun and slammed into the rocks. The world stabilized a bit as he free fell a dozen feet down the sheer rock before hitting the bottom of the valley. He said he wasn't sure how long he laid in the leaves and dirt before he started moving. As he stood up, he could hear the leaves rustling from around the corner of the valley. He figured that the woman was coming to see if he was dead or not. He looked around and saw an opening in the rock. He pulled himself up and over to the crack and squeezed through the hole as fast as he could. 
I clarified that the crevice to get into the cave through the rocks was small and hard to get into. He said, yes, he barely fit into it. He had no idea how we all fit in and pulled him out. He crawled into the cave and went around the corner and entered the large room. His description, though, was that it was massive, hundreds of feet into the mountain, judging by the echo of his steps in the dark. He fumbled around for his keys, trying to find the flashlight that was attached to them. When he turned on the flashlight, he could see that the ground was uneven, dark stone, with slight glints of shiny bits in the rock. He walked forward, looking back every few seconds at the entrance, looking for the shadow of the woman in the daylight streaming through. He went through this massive room for what felt like an hour, before he found bits of cut wood lying on the ground. He shined the light around, the boards, showing that something was once here. His light flashed over something quickly as he looked around. A ladder. He stepped onto the first rung and put the light in his mouth and began climbing. He started counting the rungs after a bit. Ten. Twenty. Forty. Just as he was about to reach fifty, he saw the ceiling of the cave. In the ceiling was the ladder, and sunken into the stone was a square trap door, roughly two feet square. He pushed up on it, and the door opened easily, and with little noise. He shined the light around the room as he climbed into it, seeing a dark wooden room with a small door made of wood planks. He could see light from a fire dancing under and around the door next to the wall. Stephen says he opened the door and looked into the next room. The room was small, with a single window. There was a fireplace casting light into the room. He saw an old, bearded man sitting in a leather chair, looking at the fire. He was wearing a plaid shirt and black pants. A leather hat sat in his lap. He was staring into the fire, deep in thought. An older woman was cooking meat for what looked like stew. She looked like the same woman that pushed him in on the ridge. She grabbed some herbs and trimmed them up before setting them in a small pile on the table. And then she turned and saw Stephen and smiled. His description of the cabin was the same one that I had seen, but there seemed to be some sort of crawlspace or second storage area in the back. The walls of that cabin wouldn't make this possible, as the exterior of that wall, where the chimney was, was the same depth the whole way across. There was no area for that room with the crawlspace and the trapdoor. Stephen said her smile wasn't one of happiness or relief, but one of a sinister nature, one that had malice behind it. She took a step towards him, then another, and another. Stephen attempted to go back through the door, but it was jammed. Then he felt a burning sensation on his shoulder as the woman's knife cut into his flesh. 
He screamed out in pain as he fell forward, the door opening. He scrambled, crawling quickly to the trap door, and opened it. Where he expected there to be a ladder leading into the pit of darkness, he saw a dim light illuminating the ground only two or three feet below him. He dropped headfirst into the crawl space and felt more burning and a wetness developing on his legs as the woman cut at them with the knife. He crawled until he reached a wall of rock and turned around. The woman was beginning to crawl into the hole after him. He finally gathered himself, drew his revolver, and fired off one shot. He missed her by a few inches. He realigned himself and braced himself against the wall and fired off another shot, striking the woman in the leg. She screamed, pulling herself out of the hole quickly. Stephen sat, waiting for either of them to come back. His vision began blurring, and he began to black out from blood loss as he watched the crawl space shift slowly from wood and stone to the cave that we found him in. He wasn't sure how long it had been between the change in the area and when we found him. It's been a long time since I talked to Stephen in the hospital. Since our encounters that day, I tried to avoid the area of the woods that the cabin resides in. Every few months I would need to drive through, though, just to make an appearance and fill out my paperwork. When I drove down that road, it wouldn't feel like other roads in the area. I felt like I was being watched or followed when I was there. Emil, Stephen, and Michael stopped hunting the area after the incident. Other hunters moved in with the same idea that those three had. A good spot to hunt deer. Once or twice a year, we get reports from hunters that they saw someone in the woods. A woman in a green vest with bloody blue jeans and a slight limp. We check it out as we're required to respond. But no one ever finds anything. No signs of the woman. No one has ever mentioned a cave in the bottom of the valley either. The cabin has finally fallen into itself. The chimney finally collapsed the building. Now just a rotting pile of wood and a small stone fireplace juts out to stand amongst the trees.